Welcome back to Season 2 of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic Science Podcast, where we look forward to the new synthesis in the new millennium between faith, philosophy, and science. This is Episode 83 of That's So Second Millennium. Today we talked to Jonathan Lunin about the possibilities of finding extraterrestrial life, how we would find it, we're talking about more like microbial life than anything else at this point. Well, we're pretty sure there aren't six-foot-tall Martians with death rays at this point. Uh, they probably would have come for us by now. Um, if any of them are living underneath the crust of uh, Europa, they're hiding themselves pretty well. So we're probably looking for microbes, and that means we're looking for chemical signatures. So we discuss with Dr. Lunin what we would be looking for, and of course how far we can possibly cast the net, since of course we start with an understanding of how life has specifically evolved on Earth, and we don't know what the other possibilities are. So, and we wrap up with a reminder that the next Society of Catholic Scientists meeting, which will be in Providence College next June, they've all, well, the last two have been in June, I think this one will be also be in June. In any case, it's going to be at Providence College, and it will focus on extraterrestrial life. So with that, uh, to take you back to the interview. This is the last full episode from this interview. I uh, hope you've enjoyed it as much as we did. Yeah. Yeah, that whole question of, you know, th so it's already come up <clears throat> in a couple of different ways, but, you know, how widely are we, I mean, so the whole field of astrobiology, you know, as someone, as, as someone who's a geologist has done a little bit of planetary work, but it's kind of tangential to the field, certainly of, of astrobiology. It's a fascinating fascinating uh, subject that we have people studying it. It's, it's their, it's their professional vocation. They're studying something we haven't found yet. <laughs> it's a well, strange position to be in. Right. So that's if you define astrobiology narrowly, but it's really defined as the study um, not only of life um, that had an independent origin from earth or the search for that life. It's also, it also embraces the aspects of the origin of life on Earth, how life evolved, how a planet remains habitable through time. Um, it really is um, a, a, a field that sort of overlays areas of what we would call traditional geology, planetary science, um, and so forth. So in that respect, it does actually have subjects to study and, and – um, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's very much, I think, the way that planetary science was back in the 50s and early 60s before the space program got going. You know, there was no field. I mean, you didn't have a professor of planetary science, as you right. see right now at the University of Arizona, um, or, uh, you know, a journal of planetary science. It was either typically done as part of astronomy, or it might be done you know, geologists thinking about exploring the moon, that sort of thing, but <clears throat> without the ability to actually get there. And right. so, actually, astronomers didn't really like planetary science right. very, very much. And, and my old institution at, at the University of Arizona, when Gerard Kuiper left Chicago to found a planetary science laboratory at, at, at Arizona, mm -hmm. um, he was uh, shown the door by the astronomers, and it was only because the president was interested he was able to set it up in the physics department. And years mm -hmm. later, it became a department of its own. So I think astrobiology is kind of at that point today where planetary science was 50-some-odd years ago. And, of course, if we do discover life 
somewhere in the solar system, even microbial life is what it would be. That would really break open the field tremendously. But so would uh, some, you know, discovery that provides a deep insight into how life actually began on the Earth. What were the specific steps? Right. Uh, that would also, I think, really uh, um, enliven and energize that field. Yeah, because there's there's so many, yeah, there's so many intriguing possibilities. Like since we don't know how life on Earth started, we don't know for certain that it even started on Earth. That's right. Um, and it's quite possible that it started, for example, on Mars. And the reasoning behind that is that Mars is a much smaller planet. And so when these planets um, assembled out of smaller pieces, uh, that process provided a tremendous amount of heat and melted uh, even the solid rock uh, for the Earth, perhaps to the point where Briefly, it had a silicate atmosphere, a silicate vapor atmosphere, mm-hmm. and it took the Earth longer to cool down than Mars because Mars is a smaller planet, so it cools down more quickly. It has and Mars didn't go through the area for its volume. Didn't so go that, the moon forming impact either. And then there was moon forming impact, which Mars didn't suffer. So um, it could be that Mars had liquid water earlier than the Earth did. We know Mars did have liquid water in the past, thanks to the Mars rovers and orbiters. That evidence is um, uh, almost incontrovertible. And if it had it sooner, maybe life began there. And then, well, how did it get to the Earth? Well, uh, impacts happen through time, and it turns out that uh, an impactor gouging out a piece of crust wouldn't destroy all of the microbes present, a small fraction that were you know, it would be deep inside the chunk that got blasted out. They would survive. And uh, it doesn't take all that long on a geologic timescale for some of that material to make it to the Earth. And uh, again, some of those microbes could survive the entry and the impact. So it's possible that we're, you know, our ancestors were Martian. Um, that is a possibility. That's something. For that matter, isn't it also possible they could have lived on the interior of an asteroid in the early solar system? Yeah, that's possible too, because um, asteroids are actually fragments of much larger so-called parent bodies. And when you look at the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt today, which is Ceres, C-E-R-E-S, mm-hmm. it's spherical. Um, it has minerals on the surface that suggest they reacted with liquid water. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have had an ocean in the its interior in the past, and there were lots of bodies like that in the early solar system and some even larger. And so if life got started on those, um, you know, we could have, could have started out as, um, I'm not sure what the adjective is, asteroid babies or something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> Extraterrestrials works for me, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, and so, and that, so that begs the question, if we do, you know, if we do sample, we manage to sample enough of Europa or Enceladus or one of these other ocean worlds, like you're discussing, um, we, and we found something that was just, oh, it was so close to terrestrial biochemistry, you know, would that itself be sort of an argument for this, you know, extraterrestrial origin of life? And that it was simply spread around the solar system from a single origin? How would we distinguish those two? So that's right. So that's the conundrum. Um, if you just were able to tell that something was alive, but you couldn't actually tell what its biochemistry was, or you could tell, and it was pretty, very much Earth-like, mm-hmm. you would have this dilemma, which is the following: um, Is it life that had an independent origin, but 
you know, the, the, the bottleneck from chemistry to biology is so narrow that it always comes out Earth-like? <laughs> or was that life somehow transported to the Earth? And it turns out that as far away as Enceladus is uh, around Saturn, there's a small probability that that could have happened. I mean, ideally, we want to look in places in our solar system where there's no probability that there was an exchange of material and therefore microbes between the Earth and these objects. Then we would know that they really were isolated and whatever is there had an independent origin. And the frustrating thing is you can't quite say that. It's, no. it's There's a small but finite probability. So, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, to bring up Voltaire, um, what you would, if, if you discovered on Enceladus life and that life turned out to have a very different biochemical scheme than life on the earth, you know, different amino acids, not the 20 that we use, but some other combination of the many, many hundreds that are possible chemically, then you would say, hey, this had an independent origin. And so life began twice in our solar system. That, mm-hmm. that would be interesting. Yeah. And maybe probably as a last question here, um, but how widely are we able to spread the net? I mean, you know, if we're, if we're going to pick up a few biochemical signatures, how can we, what, what um, molecules are we able to identify as potential biochemical signatures for potentially unknown biochemistry? So um, a group of us faced this problem when we proposed a mission back to Enceladus called Enceladus Life Finder. So as background, Cassini discovered this plume of essentially water vapor and ice coming out of Enceladus in 2004. Um, We were able to fly Cassini through that plume about a dozen times. It had instruments that were able to give us a basic chemical uh, workup of what's in the plume. And yes, there were carbon-bearing molecules and salts and some small silica grains that suggested um, reactions between the water deep inside Enceladus and the rock at high temperature. So that's great, you know, sort of like the ocean floor of the earth. Now let's go look for life. What do you look for? And in order to keep the mission not complicated and to limit the types of instruments, um, you don't want to try to find and culture a cell. I mean, that's just really hard to do with a robotic spacecraft a billion miles away. So we looked for, you can look for the following. Amino acids are the building blocks of proteins, and even if a different set of amino acids are used than the ones we have on Earth, biology will look different from a non-biological collection of amino acids because with a, a, just a chemical uh, production of amino acids, the easiest amino acids to form are the most abundant, and that's not what we see in terrestrial biology. We, our cells produce the tough amino acids because those are the ones that it needs. And that's what we would expect to find, even if it's a different mm-hmm. collection. Amino acids have handedness. They're not, they're not right. symmetric. You know, they, if you put them together, um, the, you can put the mirror image of an amino acid uh, against the original one, but you can't flip it around. So this is called chirality. And um, all the amino acids that we use in our cells, with very few exceptions, and those are only sort of subsidiary processes. Um, they're all left-handed. All right. So amino acids, um, the pattern of amino acids can tell us whether there's life. Right. The pattern, the pattern of fatty acids uh, as well can do the same thing. 
And there are some molecules like steroid type molecules that if you found them in the soup of this uh, plume, they're very hard to form by any process other than biology. So that's the kind of thing you'd go looking for in a first mission to look for life uh, in the plume of Enceladus and therefore in the ocean of Enceladus. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I didn't even know. You mentioned at some point, I think, um, that uh, you said there were a few molecules, that uh, amino acids, that weren't left-handed. I, I, was, I was surprised to even hear that. Um, in, so, in yeah, so, right. So uh, there are some microbes that use, um, you know, they'll use amino acids for things other than the construction of the proteins. And so it's sort of for incidental usage. But for mm-hmm. building the proteins themselves, it really is all left-handed amino acids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so my question was um, whether we could you know, if supposing life is different enough, you know, does it not use proteins? Does it use some other kind of, I mean, presumably polymer, you know, does it store energy in a different form than fats and carbohydrates? How far, how far from, I mean, so I guess, you know, but you've given us a clue, I guess, in the sense that we would look for something that looks different than equilibrium. We would look for something that we could from geological evidence or experiments, you know, doesn't seem to spontaneously form, I guess, might right. be the answer. Right, exactly. And the place where we might be able to test this is Saturn's moon Titan, where on the surface, again, a discovery of Cassini is that there are these lakes and seas that are filled with liquid methane uh, with admixtures of other hydrocarbons. Well, you know, aqueous-based biology isn't going to work in those methane lakes and seas. and so one might ask the question, could there be a form of biochemistry that works in liquid methane? I mean, yeah. one level, it sounds implausible because methane is a very simple liquid, right? It doesn't have any polarity. Yeah, it's not, it's, yeah, it's not uh, polar. It's going right. to work very differently. But, you know, I mean, we should go look for it, I think, because we sure. could be surprised. We could be surprised. Surprises are what we should count on. <laughs> That's always the case in science, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And it's also the case in Zoom because it knocked me off the uh, yeah. off the air for a while there. But I think that you're right. Surprise is universal. Surprise yep. is definitely universal. Yes. But so, uh, my only last contribution, perhaps you've already discussed it, was this. All this discussion gives a good opportunity for another shout out about the Society of Catholic Scientists. And the next conference, which is going to be discussing extraterrestrial life, right? That is correct. So the Society of Catholic Scientists is an organization of more than a thousand members now. And uh, its purpose is to witness to the harmony of faith and science. Um, We are actually expanding our activities. um, But uh, I, I, this opportunity to advertise the next meeting um, is uh, indeed uh, about um, the possibility of extraterrestrial life and the implications of that for um, whether what the implications are for our faith. And uh, I think that I'm trying to get the A's in the right order. Um, I think it's aliens, angels, and AI. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's a great topic. Yeah, absolutely. great set of topics. 
So, um, you know, we don't open these meetings to non-members, and therefore if you are an um, undergraduate or graduate student of science, you can join SCS uh, for a pittance uh, and become a member and participate in that meeting. If you are a professional scientist, uh, please do consider joining as well. If you're in uh, theology um, or philosophy, uh, you can also join as an associate member. So um, if that's a topic that's of interest to you, I think the conference next June, which will be at Providence College, will be of great interest. And um, yeah, please uh, Google on Society of Catholic Scientists and you will get to our webpage. Mm-hmm. Great. And access yeah, and cool. the talks from previous conferences as well. That's yeah. right. You can see the talks from the Notre Dame conference, which I think um, will, uh, in fact, be of interest to uh, quite a broad audience. Yes, and there are some on YouTube uh, publicly available as well. If you enjoyed this episode or one of our previous episodes, please leave us a review on iTunes. iTunes is the biggest distributor of podcasts, and having reviews there will help us reach a wider audience. We would also love it if you posted your review on other services like Google Play and Stitcher as well.